Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Today's guest is Magnus Penker, author of Play Bold. Magnus, welcome from Sweden. Thank you so much, Mark. We're so thrilled to have you here today. So let's start off with you just telling us a little bit about your professional background. Yeah, so um, I started my background um, actually in, in the uh, military industry. Uh, and then I got a, a weird position employed as an inventor. That's very odd. Uh, a few years later, I ended up in a management consultancy company and, and tried to uh, take the other side of, of the coin and, and bring things more to commercial success. So that's a little bit of my background. And then I started to build up companies. Um, I founded more than 10 companies. And, and uh, at the end of the day, I become very interested in, in what, why is certain company taking off and not others? So I spend quite much time on researching that and practice that also in my own consultancy practice. So that's a little bit of my background. That's excellent. And, and why did you write this book? And uh, one of the things I thought was really interesting was that instead of calling them chapters, you call them episodes like movies. So I kind of wonder if you, what's your connection with the movie industry? Uh, well, I, I do have that, but that we can leave that out of this call. Uh, so the reason for I calling it an episode, the, the first statement uh, in Play Bold is basically that you're going to die. Uh, and, and people get a little bit, you know, uh, terrified about that. But the, the good news, the good news is that you can actually take care of what you have. You can extend your life. You can have a pretty good life. And if you're an organization, you can leapfrog to upcoming S curve and have many lives. So it starts there, and it ends with an uh, an epilogue: how New York would look like 2050. So it's a journey. It's a story. It's a story from what you can do. If you really make up your mind, what is actually possible? So that's why it's episodes and not chapters. And so how do you de define innovation? So for me, innovation uh, is to come up with something new based on what's existing. Uh, and and um, the, the Joseph Schumpeter, one of the most maybe quoted uh, um, thinkers in the space, he said in the 1800th century that innovation is the creative destruction where entrepreneurs combine existing elements in new ways. And it's pretty smart. He implied that everything exists, it's a matter what you do with it. That's also my definition. If you can create something new out of existing components and you can reach a totally new result, that is for me innovation. And so let's talk about what, you know, your definition of creative instruction and how it relates to um, philosopher Ludwig uh, Witt, uh, Wittgenstein's observations on this. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like that question. Uh, it, it is the first time anyone asked me that. So uh, just for you guys, I, I brought actually the original manuscripts from Ludwig Wittgenstein. 
It's 100 year old and it's almost impossible to read. Uh, mm-hmm. And I love that book. It starts basically with defining that the world is everything there is, period. And, and the idea Wittgenstein had is that you can actually predict things if you can accept the axiom that everything exists, just like Joseph Schumpeter. And both these gentlemen, they, they, they lived uh, basically at the same time, and, and, and Peter Drucker were heavily inspired by them. Uh, if, if he, he was, you know, uh, almost from the same era. Uh, so the idea is that if you can consider the world as a system and you can accept it's an infinite number of components, which means it's an infinite number of combinations, and, and if you can start there, you can take that lens and look at the world and say, hey, what can I do that haven't been done before? Uh, using and building on the shoulders of other people. That's why I think it's important to build on other people's shoulder, not try to invent it just for the sake of it. Instead, look out for what's possible, what's existing, maybe in other trades, other industries, other eras of, you know, maybe go back to the middle age and look for solutions. Uh, I have one example uh, when the pandemic hit, I got an, assi- an assignment from one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world. And then asked me for help. It was in March, 2020. I took my team and we read The Camarone, 1000 year old uh, novel to figure out how, how was it to be locked in during uh, the pledge? Oh, right. Yeah, so that's 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 a little bit of of, of um, the the idea behind it. You know, you were telling me just before we started, you were giving me a little bit about the company you've um, built now. Tell them a little bit about the company because that really dovetails into why this book is an amazing book. Yes, yeah, so so we Innovation Three Hundred and Sixty is is the company I founded six years ago. Uh, we operate in 45 countries. We are not a big, big firm, but we cover 20, 45 countries. And the reason that we are able to do that is we accreditate uh, people in, in, to be able to use our tools and methods. And we developed what's most likely um, the most comprehensive uh, solution for assessing and designing organization for succeeding with innovation. So we can assess any kind of organization. We can give you insights how to organize and remeasure and make sure you stay on track and build the right kind of, of, of culture. And that is essentially what's differing, differentiating the spenders from the one that really succeed. If you just spend money, most likely you will not even succeed with innovation. You have to do it in the right way and create the right kind of culture. So, so that's what we do. So we have two arms, one consultancy arm and one arm where we uh, accredite consultants and professors all over the world and they can use our tools uh, in their own assignments or in the training with education. So we're going to circle back to this, uh, this uh, about how culture affects this, but l- let's talk about this. Why did you use the analogy of being an anthropologist? Explain that. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's a little bit odd in the U.S. I, I, most people talk maybe about, you know, um, eth- uh, ethnographs or so, um, the reason is actually that, that an, a true anthropologist, they only observe, they never uh, interfere. Typically, you go you know, out on an island uh, uh, and, and study you know, a tribe, maybe for half a year, without even talking to them. And, and the reason I'm using that is 
we need in the business society to learn to observe, uh, to, to really not asking questions or, you know, project our own thoughts on you. I have a great example that I'm also writing about in the book. Um, it's a few guys actually from Sweden, brilliant entrepreneurs. They created a, a small cleaning device that you can put into your shower. And you can circulate oh, yeah. the water. Yeah, you can circulate the water. I remember this story. And, yeah. <laughs> and the thing here is that it's, it's absolutely brilliant. Um, and then they launched it, big launch. They had VC fund. Uh, and then they had most of the, the devices were returned to them because they broke. And, and the question is why? And they came, they came to the conclusion that, that people do things in the shower that ever never would admit. <laughs> yeah, they, they pee in the shower. So, so actually, yeah. the, the cleaning device broke down due to all the salt. Um, so if you were you know, applying an anthropological um, approach, you would actually figure out what people do in the shower before you launch the product. And there are many examples like that. I, and, there, and your book is full of these great examples. What's the process you go through to innovate? And is it the same all of the time, regardless of industry and stage of company's life cycle? Um, well, there is, of course, a, a basic set of, of uh, steps. But there is one very big difference. Um, so in mature industries, especially if it's complex and B2B, uh, you typically have pretty heavy development pro projects which make it even more important to work with a pre-stage uh, gate model. So most companies today, they, they apply the stage gated model. It's very rigid, very big. Uh, and, and if you really would like to succeed, you need to put some effort in the pre-stage gated uh, part of it. But you know, rushing into a big manufacturing industry and say, hey guys, uh, I'm going to teach you agile methods. Th that will not work. If you apply lean to hospitals, it crashes. If you apply agile to manufacturing, it crashes. It's naive. It doesn't work. I'm not saying that lean and Six Sigma and, and agile methods or Scrum is, or DevOps is not a good thing. It is. But when it comes to complex development, you can't really build a city like that. So when it's complex and big, you need to put more effort into the pre-stage gated model where you do all the experiments and you learn, because then you have to follow a certain process. While if we talk about IT or we talk about fast moving consumer goods, you can adjust along the road, having feedback loops. That's the big difference, basically. Otherwise, you have to go through the stage of reducing uncertainty to learn, to pick the right product and go ahead and, and, and try it out in, in, in tiers and then launch it. But the big difference is if it's complex, you need to do more of the work in the beginning, basically. And, and that makes sense. And we were talking about a company who's done a great job of that from Sweden. Um, a question from the audience. What role you believe experience within an industry plays with innovators from our audience? Could you repeat the question one more time? Sure. Uh, what role you believe experience within an industry plays with innovators? So how much experience do they need to have in a specific industry to be successful? That's an interesting question. I'm, um, I'm not a big fan of the industry concept at all. Uh, I'm one of the guys that claim that it's... Uh, it's, it's due uh, to, to talk about industries or, or, or verticals. 
uh, everything floating together basically. So I, I would I would turn around the, the, the question and, and, and ask myself instead, what do you need to be successful with innovation? And the first um, thing that you need to have is curiosity. The second thing is to be T-shaped, to think broad and have a few specialized uh, skills. And the third thing is to team up with the right people. Um, that's what really make a difference. And sometimes, and it, this could be hard to hear, but sometimes experts blocking uh, innovation. You need sometimes to take the experts and the prestige out of the equation to really make the breakthroughs. And then you can bring in the experts. Uh, I have one very interesting example that I just mentioned about the pharmaceutical company. After we read the Camerone, we start to read uh, Ernst Hemingway. Uh, uh, and then we got in contact with an astronaut that lived remotely on International Space Station for six months. From that guy, you can learn how it is to live remotely. And if you would ask a psychologist from an Ivy League with 20 years experience, they wouldn't be able to tell you anything because they don't know. We didn't have a pandemic. So, but after you interview an astronaut and you read the Camarone, thousand years old, you can go to the, to the psychologist, to the researchers, and you can ask them questions and they will be able to elaborate on it. So until you read that, you couldn't ask smart questions, right? You just couldn't, you weren't asking informed questions. Question from the audience. Some industry players really don't like innovation because it disrupts their comfortable uh, business model, like the healthcare industry, for example. How can we create true ongoing innovation ecosystems that allow for us, uh, that allow for us disruptive paradigm shifts? Government enforces monopolies exist and are a major problem for society and innovation. So what's your take on that? My take is that the, the pandemic has been awful, but it learned us quite much. And we should never forget that. We could produce a vaccine in one year instead of 10. And the yeah. list is long what we did. That's the way to look upon it. That's the way to argue. And actually we should turn it around and ask ourselves, how do we use the tax money we waste them. So uh, that's my, my short answer. My second answer that is kind of short uh, is to um, change employer. Don't work for the schmucks. Why should you? And my third answer that is a bit longer is that's already going on. I'm working with um, the whole uh, uh, um, healthcare segment in Saudi Arabia. And I tell you, they do a good job. So, uh, and, and the same is going on in, in um, the United Arab Emirates. It's going on in Israel and many other places, but I'm personally involved in Saudi and they do a good job. So this is happening and other will follow. Sweden's known for its innovation, IKEA, Spotify, Cell Inc and others. Is there something taught in school or is that part of the Swedish culture? Yeah, I was afraid that you're going to ask that question. Uh, so, uh, it, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm apparently Swede. I, I lived in New York for many years um, and in Germany. So, so I have a little bit of outside perspective, but it's hard to, you know, to um, judge your own culture. Uh, there is one thing. I have a very good friend in Hong Kong and I asked her over dinner once, 
because she worked both in China and in Sweden. And I asked her, could you, could you somehow explain for me the difference between Chinese and Swedish culture? And I think I'm going to use her answer. She told me that, Magnus, you know, in China, if you don't kill your neighbor, you don't survive. In Sweden, if you kill your neighbor, you don't survive. <laughs> so it's a few people. And if we don't collaborate during the cold winter, we're gone. We have been, we have been forced to collaborate for thousands of years. And I think that might be our main strength. You can trust the Swede. We are excellent in leadership and collaboration. And we get it done. Uh, and that has historical reasons because we had to. So genetically, the only guys that are left are the ones that can collaborate. And I think that is actually the, the, the main reason that we can come up with great things with quite few citizens. I mean, we are like a small town in, in total population, 10 million people. It's absolutely nothing. So you're very, Israel is very much like Sweden. Yes, it is. This is almost same size, same thing, same, you know, yep. everything in a sense. Um, how do you create a culture of innovation? As the chess champion Magnus Carlsen wrote, you need the right balance between analytical thought and inspired creativity. Let's talk about that. Yeah, so um, he, he's a very interesting character, by the way. Uh, and and it's um, interesting that that you, you quote him. Um, I would say that, that if you're very, very good in chess, you're able to have two thoughts in your mind at the same time. Uh, the long term, and you can't really be sure because it's more like a scenario, your scenario planning ahead. And then you are tactical and making moves uh, to, uh, to basically put your uh, opponent uh, into either less favorable situation or maybe a more, you know, like a mental instable state. Um, so in, in business, you need to work with your existing S-curve extended to have the, the, the resources to identify the upcoming S-curves uh, where you can find new things for the future. But the question is, how do you lead that? I, I did a pretty large study that I presented the Peter Drucker Forum in Vienna 2016 uh, around this topic. And, and I, I, I don't have like the silver bullet, but I can tell you a few things. Uh, it's um, obvious when we look into our data and we have more than 10,000 companies in our database in every country. And it's not wow. just one, one person, it's thousands of persons. So, we profile millions of people in our database. And what I can say based on data is that smaller companies, they typically have a more allowing way of leading, generally speaking. You can be um, sometimes very explorative and visionary, another time very detailed and focused, breaking down things to goal. So they like kind of unintentionally um, allow you working both long-term and short-term at the same time. I think most of them wouldn't really see that themselves. Uh, while large corporation, if you do a career in a large corporation, you do what your boss do, does. So the, the, the problem is that it becomes very uniform. So large corporations typically have one way of leading, which also lead them to, if they grow, they're most likely very incremental. They're most likely what I call speed staircase. They work in small steps. They're not explorers because they grow to a certain size and it's hard to do if you're only explorer. 
So what do they do? Well, they start an innovation hub or innovation center. And that is the start of the beginning. Sorry, that is the start of the end. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't work out. That's a way to try to compensate for bad culture and for uh, a lack of, of leadership. And the, the cognitive leadership is what I've seen working absolutely best, where you are able to connect and relate and being able to see people where they are here and now. Okay, let's work like that. Okay, you guys, you can work a little bit more future-oriented. So the cognitive leadership style is necessary to be very practical, looking ahead with a few teams, looking here and uh, uh, here now with a few other teams. So that is one component. And the other component is the organizational design. And the, the worst thing that I have never seen it working is innovation centers, uh, yeah. innovation hubs, uh, innovation, whatever you call it, and the fancy name, the worse it is. Uh, so you, instead, you need to find what I call a runway. You have to identify where do you have the customer and the folks ready to rock and roll and support them and, and, and not, you know, p- uh, patronizing them and say, now we brought in this super team of young kids that's going to rock and roll and everybody get demotivated instead. Uh, why is that, uh, that these centers don't work uh, at all? And you mentioned how they could be made to work. Yes. Yep. What, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah. So, so first of all, uh, you need to ask yourself, why do you establish, uh, let, let's for the sake of it, call it Innovation Center. Uh, so why do you establish one? Is it to brag? Is it to create cash flow? Uh, is it to explore, to learn? Most people, they, they don't ask that simple question. They just want to have it. And that's the first reason why it failed. The second reason is that they live in their own satellite. They are disconnected from the market. They don't even have customers to talk to. And everyone with customers protecting their customers. So they have a hard time to reach out to the market. So they have the funding, they have the education, they're super smart, but they don't have customers. They don't have the knowledge. They're basically blocked by organization. So instead you need to identify what I call radical pockets. When we do our uh, assessments, we, we identify typically a group of, of people somewhere that are more radical. They do skunk work. And those exist in every company with at least 500 to 1,000 people and more. You will find them and you can build on their shoulders instead. So you can pick them up and say, hey, we know that you do skunk work. You're not allowed to do that. But you know what? Good. Let's do some more. That is much more successful. Uh, so, so this is about how to handling and treating and empowering people. Uh, it's also about why you start an innovation center. And, and if you want to do it just to brag, I think it's smart to admit that and put the KPI on it. I, I think you're right in a certain extent that a lot of schools feel like if we don't have this and we can go get a donation from uh, a, a alumnus to or a corporation, they'll build it. They'll put their name on it. We can say to parents that we have it. We can offer uh, classes and usually taught by people who don't have any experience in it, but are just academics. And, and now we can go and parade it out, but then the results don't actually justify the expense of, of even building this thing. Um, yeah, so one, one of the few that are actually pretty good at that is Israel. You, you mentioned Israel before. They are exceptional. And, and why reason- is that? Because they integrated it with the military service. You do three years in Israel and it's integrated. 
you become a part of it whether you want or not. It's very systematic, holistic on a, on a governmental level. And they created like a super efficient uh, innovation machine because they integrate everything. So if, when you do the military service, if you go to mass, you train mass, you believe it will be integrated with the military industry and so forth. So they really produce um, entrepreneurship and innovation during the military service. And then they offer programs. And those programs is normally like nine months. And they kick you out if you don't deliver. Oh, yeah. I, I, <laughs> and they've been doing that for about 30 years. And almost every major company has come out of the military. Yeah, they, they now have a incubator um, in the Negev region that started 30 years ago, and now it has 117 companies, and all their cybersecurity and all the new products are coming out of that yep. one area that didn't exist 30 years ago. I mean, think how fast that is. It might not seem like a lot when you're, you know, depending on your age, but 30 years is pretty quick. A question from the audience. If you have to innovate and create products for a community which is neurodiverse, where each participant has multiple comorbid conditions, any suggestions? Yeah, you, you should. Um, there is something I call platform innovation. Uh, the, the, the one that I would claim is the leading in the world is Scania doing the trucks. If you have a Scania truck that is 40 years old, you can actually change the, 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 power, um, the power line, driving it forward, the power line. No, the powertrain, sorry, the powertrain. You can replace the powertrain that is the, the thing that's driving the truck ahead with a new one. How is that possible? Because those folks, for more than 60 years, I think, because they started in the 40s, somewhere around 60 years, they have deliberately created components, adapters, converters, whatever they do, you can shuffle it around and build something new out of it. And there is always a converter or always um, an adapter if you create a new interface, that's how you do it. So platform innovation is the way to go ahead if you have a highly customized market. You wrote about a lot of companies that are really good at innovation. And do you have one or two favorites that either you've worked with or observed? And, and why are they good at it? Yeah, yeah. So there are, there are several um, <clears throat> examples. Um, one, one example that might be um, a little bit surprising is IBM. They reinvented themselves at least five times, depending on how you count. That's pretty cool. And when people ask me you know, about Google, what I say is that give them another 50 years and let's see. Maybe. But with some perspective, IBM is a shining star. Uh, another example um, that is not 100 years old, but quite old, uh, is Halt Business School. They have, during the pandemic, earned money. And it's the largest business school in the world, started by a Swede, Bertil Halt. Uh, I happen to be a very good friend with his chief academic officer, Johan Ross. And what they did is that they basically bought uh, okay business schools, pulled them together and get ranked as the 18th best business school in the world, above Colombia. 
That's amazing. And it's the largest business school in the world. And they had the best year ever last year, ever. So why? Because they spend money on innovating and they don't just spend money, they demand result. And way before the pandemic, they had something called liquid learning. They had the idea that you should be able to get the experience wherever you are, whoever you are. It's not cheaper. It's very expensive. Well, depending on what you compare with, but it's, it's almost like an Ivy League ticket. And you can do it wherever you are. And you can travel around or you can do it online. And they did it way before the pandemic. They are very innovative in, in how they create the environment and the feedback and using technology. And they started from the beginning. It's called EF, English First. It was the first language, large language uh, 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 teaching company in the world. So they started in the 60s, and, and they, today they are by far the largest English teaching, teaching company. And they diversified from that. So I think that's a very good example. Then we have a few, like you mentioned, Selink. Yeah. Selink is like mind-blowing. The question is, will they exist in 100 years, 50 years? My take is absolutely yes. And, and the reason for that is that they 3D print organs. And, and my take on that is that now that I, did the, I know that I did the like ear muscle and maybe heart muscle. Soon they can do it maybe small organ. And if that's possible, most likely this, what's going to happen is that you can do clinic, clinical trials without having an approval of FDR. You can tailor made or customize um, a treatment without any approval. That means that you save significantly much money and you'll be faster to the market. They will most likely disrupt the whole pharma industry completely. Uh, and they will be at the, you know, at the uh, epicenter of that. So they're not been around that long, so I can't claim it, but they're super innovative and they're very, very organized in driving innovation. And I think that's what makes, one thing that is in common is that the senior leadership, they want to innovate and they're measuring it and they put an, an order in to do that, even if they know they might fail. So a good friend of mine, John Rossman, he was the one building up Amazon market to half of the, a revenue of Amazon. And, and he told me the other week that before he started, it failed twice. And Jeff Bezos were so angry the first time. And because the first time when he launched it, it, I think it was called Amazon Auctions. It was seven people that used the service, including his siblings and his parents. And oh, it was and a multi-million dollar uh, try, but he kept trying. And I think that's the message. Not giving up, of course, I'll be stupid, but not giving up and have faith is very important. Uh, that's what Toyota did with the Prius. I mean, people were giving up on those cars and they just kept going at it, going at it until they finally got it right where it was successful. Yep. So um, what is the profile of the people a company should hire to build an innovative culture? There's got to be a certain profile that you're looking for here. But what do you recommend to your clients? So, so there is a, a, a guy, um, uh, um, um, Tim Kelly. He, he was the founder of IDEO. He wrote a pretty good book on that called 10 Faces of Innovation. And I think that's, that's the best book written on the subject. And he categorized it in, in three categories. The learning personas, the organization. Uh, the organizational personas and the building personas. And the learning personas is what the one we're having in the early 
early stage, typically people with, you know, like uh, ethnological or, or anthropological uh, vein. And then you have uh, people that are typically cross-pollinators looking for, you know, solutions between different uh, companies, industries, markets. Um, while when you go into the building, it's more about, you know, hurdlers, uh, people pointing with the whole hand. Uh, so you, you need a combination of people that can point out the direction and get uh, things done quickly, like the hurdle. Hodler and 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 uh, experimenters that can do experiments very fast. Then you come to the building personas. That's more like storytellers, um, caregivers, people that really love to see things taking off and succeed. So, so my take on that, and we also collected data based on his framework. My take on that is that you need to have different kind of personas depending on where you are in the innovation process, early days more of learning, observing early days, late, late stage, more of like storytellers, caregivers, uh, and somewhere in the middle, you know, more like MacIver types. Yeah. <laughs> you wrote that the Chinese companies scored higher than Swedish companies in innovation. I think that yeah. might surprise some people, but maybe not now, as we're seeing them grow more and more unicorn companies. Why are they? Why is that happening there? And what can we learn from that? Yeah. So, so uh, this is a, a very interesting question. Uh, so, uh, the reason is that uh, China apply a very systematic approach, and it's grounded in Mao Zedong. I also write about that in the book. So uh, Mao Zedong said when he, you know, in his red, little red book, that. Uh, and this is a, literally a quote. Uh, if if you send in, you know, hundred uh, elite soldiers, they can kill hundred farmers, thousand farmers, ten thousand, but they can't kill a million. It's physically impossible. And the idea Mao Zedong had was that quantity become quality. So that's the approach they have. So if they want to do AI. They make sure they have 10,000 PhDs in AI, which they have according to official sources. That's how they fix it. So it's a volumes game. They take the best of the best. So, so and, and actually, um, if you look at Silicon Valley, it's kind of the same. You bring the smartest people on the planet and you have the highest number of homeless people. It's very hard to succeed in Silicon Valley and it's a big game. Just like in China, it's the same idea that quantity become quality. I believe, and I can see in data in my own practice, that you can train people. It is possible to train them to become champions. You don't have to put them through this kind of, in my uh, um, perspective at least, middle-aged methods. But it is very efficient uh, if you're only out for the, if you're only looking for the result. But the side effects is, is, is devastating. That's also why in China, they need to, to really make sure that they keep things very tight because people, um, you know, they have underlying conflicts going on for thousands of years. They need to keep it together. But I think that is actually the, the, the main reason. Uh, while, while in Sweden, we don't have that many people, so we can't really produce that many companies like Israel. Um, but if we look at numbers and 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 we sort it out per capita, uh, China is number one and Israel is actually number two. 
And Sweden, where does the U.S. fall in all of this? And I, yeah, in the middle, in the middle, together with Sweden and Germany. Yeah, unfortunately. But we, but we have a real concern that we need our kids to are to be better at math and science. I mean, this has been a big push because we've been falling behind yes. other countries in this area. And yep. clearly, like you just said, China is able to throw a lot of brilliant minds at problems and come up with solutions because they develop this discipline to be able to learn about these things. Yep. And it's very systematic and they send people to the best schools all, all over the world. They get them back home uh, and, and, you know, continue the work at home. It's very systematic. And I, I think that the reason why U.S. is falling back, I think there's a very good reason for that. It's lack of, uh, you know, it's lack of visionary thinking on, on the state level. We need someone saying that we need to go to the moon again. Like Kennedy said back in 60. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. Was, that, that was pulled everything off. And we need that kind of leadership. And, and China have not that leadership, but they have like a, another, you know, they, they have a very strong and efficient leadership. Maybe not that visionary, at least not public. Uh, but they have ideas and they're very driven and they have 100-year plans. So we need that in the U.S. We, we need someone stepping up and say that. Let's, let's colonize Mars. And not let, let Elon Musk do that. It should be the U.S. doing that. <laughs> you wrote that everyone uses the same set of elements in different combinations to succeed. Explain what you mean by that. Yeah, so uh, if, if I go back to Wittgenstein and, and, and also to uh, <clears throat> uh, Joseph Schumpeter, uh, they both claim that everything exists. I happen to believe that too. It's a matter of what you do with it and how you're shuffling around it. So the silicon were in the ground for a billion of years until till someone dig it up and made a transistor and the integrated circuit and so forth. So it's it's only a matter of perspective. We have things at hand. The question is what we do with it. And that's that's what's made a real, real big difference. Uh, so so that's why I, I'm, I'm, I'm claiming that. And the same goes with strategies. And so let, let me give you an example. If you hire one of the five big strategy consultancy companies, I know them well, I have many friends there. Uh, and if you hire them, they will give you a brilliant strategy, 100%. But they will give your competitor a brilliant strategy. <laughs> and the same strategy, what's happening is following, you invest maybe a million or two or three, and you end up in a, 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 a equilibrium so if you don't invest, you will lose. If you invest, you will be equal, okay? If you think about your pension fund, who would invest if you only have a downside and not the upside? If you buy a strategy, you have the downside of not being able to execute it, but the upside is to be equal. I don't like that idea. I like the idea of having upside and downside that is equal. That's how you bet money on the stock exchange. That's how you save for your pension. Every sound person on the planet do understand that, except when it comes to strategies, because then we buy to be equal. That's also why the alternative, and that's also why I'm arguing around that, the alternative is to apply what's called in the HR world resource-based view. Base the strategy on what you're good at. Then you beat your competitors. 
Yeah, I think some companies stretch themselves too much and 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 then fall off the wayside because they've wasted wasted resources. What's really the difference between competency and capability? Oh, that's a good one. Um, so, so I work with with capabilities, um, and I, 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 the databases we built this is built on. Um, we assess capabilities, we ass- assess the aspiration, we do correlation, and see if I want to go there, what do I need? So, let's assume that you would do that with competencies. There is a German a company called Cute. They mapped out thirty million competency profiles. Is that useful? No, because you can't even you can't you don't even remember them, <laughs> and most likely there's thirty more million. So instead, I went through the current thinking the last hundred years. It took me eight years, by the way, uh, and I synthesized it down to sixty-six capabilities. And the capability is something you do on a team level. It's something that you can perform. That's like in the military. It's, it's actually from the military, from the beginning, the thinking that you can create the capability of handling situations while, while the skill or, or the knowledge or the, or the competencies, that's more something you can learn on individual level. So individual, they can, they can learn a skill or, or they can get the competence based on skills and knowledge, while a team can build the capability of reacting or proactively handling an upcoming situation. So that way you can reduce the numbers. And in my case, 66, it could be 200 or 50, but it's a small number of capability that you can distill things down to, and then you make it tangible and useful. So capabilities on team level and competence on individual level, and it's a very smart way of, of organizing people and, and really make sure that you have what you need in place to proactively and reactively handle situations. You uh, wrote that you disagree with Peter Drucker's assertion that culture eats strategy for breakfast. What do you mean? Um, I, I had the pleasure of speaking um, at Peter Drucker Forum in Vienna, and I, I didn't know Peter Drucker, but most people there, they, they did actually. And he never said that. That's the funny thing. It's a myth. Uh, so it's a good myth, but it's still a myth. So it's... Um, and I wrote about that in the book too. Uh, it's it's a miss. And um, uh, why why do I bring that up? Because for me, culture is a part of the strategy. That's why. For me, culture is a strategic component, not the other way around. You wrote that every CEO must be able to develop the S curve. What do you mean by that, and how should it be used? So. The idea with the S-curve is that you, 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 get, you get born, you, you grow, you mature, you're aging, and, and you fade out. And this goes for everything, from, from your favorite pet to yourself and the civilization. The, the only exception is, is maybe uh, eventually companies that can leapfrog and reinvent themselves. Maybe civilization can do that too. But the idea is to understand the, 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 the growth and the maturity curve and extend it as much as possible to identify upcoming uh, possibilities and, and jump to them when the time is right. So if you as a CEO can understand where you are, how mature your you market um, is at the moment, you can foresee drying forces, 
You can foresee competition and collaboration. And then you can also plan for upcoming sweet spots in the future and, and put small bets on them. So if you do talk about S-curves and accept that everything has an end, you can extend it deliberately and you can use a part of the funding for creating upcoming S-curves. So it's a very handy tool actually to, to understand and, 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 and investigate the life cycle of a company. What's the difference between, and you talk a little bit about this earlier, what's the difference between incremental and radical innovation, which you also wrote that radical innovators are better prepared for the unknown than incremental innovators. Can you provide some examples based on products uh, we might be aware of? Yeah, so uh, radical innovation means that you, you create something that didn't exist before, while incremental is an improvement. And uh, we did a pretty good study that we published uh, at IEEE uh, in Bangkok a few years ago, where we used data to prove that companies, uh, we investigated 3,500, so, sorry, 3,800 companies out of the 10,000, very, very carefully. And we could see that the one that had both the aspiration of radical and incremental innovation, they had capabilities for handling both. While the one that had aspiration for incremental innovation only, they were pretty lousy in incremental innovation. And, and so, and the one that were you know, only into radical uh, innovation, they, they could handle both radical innovation and incremental innovation. But maybe most importantly, most of the radical innovator, innovators had the aspiration of being incremental. So if I boil this down, Incremental innovators are normally very ill-structured. They recreate yesterday. Radical innovators, if they survive, they also do incremental innovation and they're very, very capable of doing both at the same time. And, and a lot of companies uh, that have been radical and continue to be radical, they're also pretty good at improving what they have. And one example that I think we will see, this haven't happened yet, but I, I could almost put a bet on it. Uh, Toyota is maybe most known for incremental innovation with Kanbans, you know, and Kaizen, right? But they have been spent quite much money on hydrogen for, I don't know, 15 years or something like that. Right now, they build their own city run by hydrogen. And they spend enormous amount on that. And they're very good at it. I believe that due to that, they will be able to launch fantastic electrical cars already next year. Wow. So that's an example. What's going to happen to uh, Elon Musk and his company? And I thought it was interesting your book. I did not know this, that Elon Musk was not the founder of Tesla. No, that two not. other guys found Tesla. And I hope those guys made some significant money, even though they're... I think one is still, like I think you said in your book, is still there, I guess, uh, doing, providing uh, engineering or something. And the other one is not there, who was the CEO. So uh, is Tesla going to have to be worried about Toyota? That's an interesting question. Um, honestly, I believe so. And I think that, uh, that Toyota is the only real threat. Because they invested so significantly in alternative energy sources, 
and they are very good engineers and very efficient. And they've proven themselves many times. Uh, I, I believe they could be a serious threat. I, I think so. I think it's absolutely possible. Um, however, um, the advantage Tesla really have is that they don't really consider um, themselves as automotive manufacturer. Um, and they are like IT uh, uh, um, developers or, or software developers at the heart, uh, which has been an advantage. Um, so the question is, I would say, let's assume Tesla stick to the strategy that uh, at least is known. I think that they will have a pretty tough match with um, Toyota. But let's assume that they diversify. Uh, then I think they could be very successful for a long time uh, ahead. Uh, please talk about the facet trap and what leaders can learn uh, from that, because clearly companies like Smith Corona, who should have dominated the laptop and uh, typewriter company and Wang Laboratories and, and Sears never studied this, obviously. All companies with big brands and leads in their space. So talk a little bit about this. I think that the, the best medicine uh, to avoid the facet trap, which, which means that you do the perfect typewriter when no one wants to have it. The, I think the absolutely best way to avoid that is to uh, v literally on a frequency basis um, ask yourself, why do I exist? If you ask yourself that question, maybe every quarter, every half year, you will not go into that trap because you will realize that the world is changing and you can give the world what the world wants. But if you don't ask yourself that question and, and believe that you are a manufacturer of typewriters, you will be a manufacturer of typewriters. And in, in actually, they, they were, it was one of the first word process company in the world. And word processing will be around for, I mean, it started with the banks. <laughs> it will be around in thousands of years from now. So I think posing that question is the most important tool to avoid that. Ask yourself and your team and ask people internally to ask themselves, why do I go to work? And what do we really sell to our customers? And what do our customers really buy from us? What is the reason of that we exist on the market? And that's also what Code actually asked themselves. They were so happy having the best profit ever the year before went uh, under chapter 11. And, and they were selling developing chemicals. That was the business idea because they made the money out of that. Everybody realized they were selling memory, but they didn't want to do that. <laughs> it was the good bodies in that. So, so I think that is the reason uh, that they fold or went under and many other big companies, we don't go under because they're focusing on the gross profit here and now. They don't ask themselves this simple question. I also think finance people start taking over these companies and don't want to spend money on that, just like we saw with Kodak and Pictures. And you had great example, and you talked about, you know, why Kodak fell from being an incredibly valuable global brand to kind of like an afterthought with all the innovation that they had done. And uh, it's a shame to have seen them fall so far behind. What can governments, both locally and nationally, do to spur innovation, or at least not hamper it? And that's. Um... I think if you crack that nut, you get Nobel Prize. But I have at least one thought on it. Um, I think that you should give uh, risk-free loans to people. 
And I don't think aid is a good, a good idea at all. Uh, aid is normally a very counterproductive to innovation entrepreneurship. Uh, free interest, free risk-free loans that you can write off uh, in five years if you fail, but you need to work five years maybe or so. So that's the, I think, is the most important thing you can do as a government to create like not a safety net, but the possibility to start. And if you get, you know, uh, bankrupt, uh, you should be able to get out of it, but you have to try first. Uh, I know, uh, I, I like how you write some uh, very provocative things, like you start episode two, don't listen to your customers. And I've heard many successful entrepreneurs actually say that. Please share your experiences and research in this area. So, so uh, we have a lot of data around this, but we also did some field studies. Uh, and, and, and it's amazing when you start to observe instead of asking how you can really understand the true need uh, so let's take an example uh, with, with the mobile phones. And maybe the most successful mobile phone manufacturer in the world, Ericsson, how they actually lost everything. Why? Well, they had the idea that a mobile phone should have an antenna and it should be big and expensive, very macho. And you know, customer with deep pockets. That was the idea they had. They didn't realize that you know, kids, small girls, they like to chat and send SMS to each other, like they did for ages. They didn't see that because they never studied people. They were just asking them about features. And of course, if you ask a macho man hunting, you know, of course you want a big phone <laughs> with a big yeah. antenna. But if you try to understand what people do with the device and what's possible with the device, you will have another answer. So I think that is the, the, the reason is that if you observe instead of asking, you will have better input. Uh, and there are so many examples. I mean, just take iPhone 1. If you ask someone who would like to have an iPhone, what's that? Uh, well, I don't know. <laughs> so um, it, it's kind of actually, when you think about it, it's kind of obvious. So that's why I don't like NKR or any kind of customer surveys. It's better to spend the same, even little, a little fraction of the money on just observing. You can do small things. I give you one advice to all of you. If you, let's assume that you work in the US and, and you maybe Fridays is the last day of the week. Mm. Why don't ask everybody, you know, for on lunch or, Maybe if you have like a cup of coffee in the morning, ask everybody, what did you see on your way to the office today that was unusual? If you post that question every Friday for a year or two, I promise you, suddenly you start to see the world in another way. And it's free. It doesn't cost anything. And you will uncover amazing possibilities. And it might even come in a quarter, but the year or two is normally what it takes. You know, I used to make my people when we would have our our uh, weekly uh, meeting on Mondays, I wouldn't let them sit in the same seat because they said, if you keep sitting in the same seat, the view never changes and you'll never create anything different. And, and, and even when I'm riding my bike, I take different routes yep. and I notice different things each time I take different routes, okay. even though I'm going in the same direction and ultimately to the same place. 
Uh, you write about looking at the long term and not just focusing on short term profits. Profits isn't that what BlackBerry did, which had a massive lead in corporate uh, in the corporate market. Uh, yes, and then then it didn't work out at the, at the end. So um, I, I think that just because you have a long term vision doesn't mean that you're going to be successful. <laughs> uh, but what I mean with that is that sometimes corporation um, they harm themselves uh, by making short-term decisions. And, and if you want to do an investment, I, I think you should ask yourself, what is the alternative cost? What could I do instead? Do I have to do this little, little loss, little thing to fine tune, or should I just leave it? Maybe I shouldn't do anything. So, so I think that is more of the perspective I have that don't do it. You know, don't fix what ain't broken, basically. Mm. Let it be. And and spend the energy and the money on finding new business and grow the business. You have a chapter, I like this name too, Kill the Entrepreneur to Save the Company. I always thought once you get rid of the entrepreneur, the creative juices of the business dry up because the board tends to go with serious financial-oriented people. Most of our listeners are entrepreneurs. So what skills should they develop to maintain their leadership position, especially if they aren't blessed with the OCD that you mentioned in the book? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of provocative, but it's written with love. Uh, and uh, what, what I really mean with this is that I think it's very healthy to, to have like, um, to plan for, for um, um plan for the one that should take over the, um, the successor of the business. And, and, and my experience is when you start to plan for the successor, you become more uh, competent as a leader. When you, when you take out the ego of your company, uh, you, you become a more mature leader and maybe you can stick around for the rest of your life. So if you start thinking about the successor and you plan for that, Ingvar Kamprad, Maybe, maybe at least in my mind, the greatest entrepreneur ever. He, he founded IKEA. He planned for his death for at least 40 years. He, he, he was very old when he died. And he planned for it for almost 40 years. And, and if you do that systematically, you start to lead in another way. You take the ego out of every equation. I think that is the problem with entrepreneurship. Why do you start the company? If we start it, I love entrepreneurs. We need entrepreneurs. The entrepreneurs are the backbone of a society. But why do you start the company? Normally, it is because you're annoyed about something. Maybe not as a serial entrepreneur, Mark, uh, because you do it for, because you can. It's fun, right? But the first company you started, maybe that was because you were annoyed or irritated or wanted to solve a problem. That's that's at least the normal case for most entrepreneurs, and that also means that over time, when you you know defended that um, and beaten it and overcome it, maybe you start to be destructive. Uh, you don't have anything to fight for anymore, and you become self-destructive. But if you start to plan for your successor, and you start to plan for the upcoming S curves. You can still mentally stable, healthy, strengthen, inspiring people, and maybe stay for the rest of your of your of your life. So that's basically what I, what what my message is: that you need to plan for it, uh, and if you do that, you increase the probability to continue to work with your company. 
Angus, my last question to you is, you wrote about cooperating with your enemies and competing against yourself. What do you mean by that? And can you give an example? Yes. There is a, a very interesting example. Uh, Ericsson and Nokia, uh, they decided, and, and for the one that doesn't know that, Nokia is still one of the largest uh, manufacturers of, of uh, telecom infrastructure. So Nokia and Ericsson, they own, I don't know, 65, 70% of the, of the total world market when it comes to uh, telecom infrastructure. They decided to create 5G and Huawei, they said, no, we don't want to do that. And that has been a strategic uh, loss for them. They are out of the loop. Now they fight their way back to be compliant with 5G. So Ericsson and Nokia created the world standard by competing, sorry, by, by collaborating. And then when they're done, they compete. So the idea is basically grow the pie, then take the pie. So don't start a fight over a small pie, grow it, make it big, then take it. So, so that is the idea with competing, um, sorry, with collaborating with the enemy, then compete with them and, and compete with yourself. Try to do your best every day. Try to figure out how to grow the market. And when you've done that, you can take the whole market. Magnus, I have to tell you, the hour went too fast. Uh, as I said to you before we even went on, I kind of feel like you're written like a Malcolm Gladwell type book. So put you in the lead uh, company. And I hope you're going to write additional books and uh, would love to have you back again, uh, especially if you write another book. So enjoy your weekend, everybody. Please be safe. And we'll look forward to seeing you all next uh, Friday. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.